Okay, so this week we're looking at um, three phenomena um, that have a lot in common, um, three, uh, and three different psychoanalytic concepts. Um, <coughs> the notion of screen memories, the notion of object choice, uh, and the notion of transference, clinical transference. And there are all three of them uh, forms of uh, repetition. And indeed, in talking about the transference, Freud produces a phrase which was to become uh, the name of a leading concept at the, in the end of his, his life, the compulsion to repeat. And that we'll be looking at that in week 10 when we're looking at the death drive, the theory of the death drive. Um, but it, 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 the concept, uh, compulsion to repeat, is first formulated in talking about the transference. Now, uh, this, the... Uh, theoretical problem, the clinical and theoretical problems that have generated these terms and concepts go right back to the very beginning, to, to the trauma stuff we looked at at the beginning of uh, last term. And uh, Freud's um, essay that I want to start by talking about the screen memory essay um, is <coughs> comes right out of that question about the relation between memory and fantasy. Okay, as he moves away from a very simple, straightforward model of trauma and of traumatic memory uh, to the notion that um, certain traumatic memories can only ever be accessed via f uh, fantasy derivatives. They never appear as such, um, as it were, um, in, in ob obvious or transparent form, thanks. Um, and he, d he evolves the notion of a screen memory um, uh, and in a rather fascinating analysis, an extended analysis of one instance of the memory, of the screen memory, um, uh, you get him enacting a logical kind of um, parabola in which he, he begins by addressing a minority phenomenon, this unusual subset of, of childhood memories that most of us have probably at least one example of, okay? Uh, and, um, and that ends up... Uh, but ends up implying or uh, a critique of uh, the whole category of childhood memories as such and their claims to sort of transparency or kind of or, or truth, as it were. Um, uh, and I want to, so I want to spend the, f uh, the first part of the lecture working through that essay. Then I'll say a few things about the object choice essay and, and the um, transference essay. Okay. Now I'm going to be slightly more formal as I was with the uh, Hamlet lecture at the end of last term because I've been writing about this stuff in a, uh, in, uh, in, in a book. So I've got some um, formulated sort of thoughts and arguments here. Okay, so I'm going to start with screen memories. In May 1899, Freud, Freud sent off for periodical population, uh, publication his paper on screen memories in where the concept is first formulated and it emerges directly out of this struggle uh, within uh, the, the fantasy memory relation in the 1890s in his thinking, and particularly in the letters to Fleece, <coughs> to articulate these two terms, memory and fantasy, in a way that isn't just a banal mutual um, opposition between them. Um, and he begins the essay uh, uh, with affirming the power of the, pre the prehistoric in individual history. Quote, that the experience of the earliest years of our childhood leave ineradicable traces in the depths of our minds, unquote. That's on page 303 at the beginning of the essay. However, these experiences that leave such traces are not represented as such directly in the archives of conscious memory. 
The outcome of a direct interrogation of our store of memories is often disappointing. Quotes, either nothing at all, this is from the earliest moments, or a relatively small number of isolated recollections which are often dubious or of enigmatic importance, unquote. So continuous memory of a connected chain of events begins only roughly with, six, with the sixth or seventh year, and often quite late, as late as the tenth year, leaving what only a year before, in a letter to Fleece, he'd called, quote, the crucial prehistoric period of individual life, which is the source of the unconscious and alone contains the etiology, the, the causation process of the psychoneuroses, lost in the obscurity of, of what he calls a general infantile amnesia. It would appear that the general rule for adult memory, that emotionally significant experiences are retained and able to be recollected, does not obtain for the earliest years, where so much disappears. Consequently, Freud addresses the enigmatic phenomenon of, I quote, people whose earliest recollections of childhood are concerned with everyday and indifferent events, which could not produce any emotional effect even in children, but which are recollected, too clearly one is inclined to say, in every detail, while approximately contemporary events to them, even if on the evidence of their parents they were moved intensely by those events at the time, have not been retained in memory. So this is a puzzle, an enigma about um, child, that's specific to childhood memories, <coughs> memories of childhood. Focusing on this common subspecies of memory then, the vividly recalled childhood scene, which appears to lack emotional significance or any reason for its retention, let alone for its clarity or for its sensory intensity, Freud elaborates an account that ends up calling into question the veridical transparency of all childhood memories. Drawing on research done in 1895 by VNC Henri, based on responses by 123 subjects to a questionnaire about their earliest memories, Freud cites as an example, exemplary instance of these enigmatic early scenes that of a professor of philology whose earliest memory from his fourth year was that of a table set for a meal with a basin of ice on it. And that's all. This coincided with the death of a much-loved grandmother which had distressed him greatly at the time but of which he has no recollection at all. Uh, he's, uh, he's told about it by his parents. Another man repeats his earliest memory as a scene in which he breaks off a branch from a tree in the presence of other people, one of whom helped him. Quotes, he thinks he can still identify the spot where it happened, unquote. If the enigmatic childhood scene is then, in Freud's metaphor, a torso without, with missing limbs, uh, then its restoration will show that it does obey the rule of adult memories and that the most important experiences are retained, Freud will claim. As we have seen in the letters to Fleece, on the memory-fantasy relation, the model Freud increasingly deployed to understand these mysterious and only apparently arbitrary fragments of memory is the one he had recently developed to analyze both dreams and symptoms. And he summarizes this model as, quote, one, conflict, two, repression, three, substitution um, involving a compromise between opposing forces. It's a model that goes back to his earliest account of pathological defense in hysteria in the Project for Scientific Psychology, which we considered in week one last term. There, schematically, an experience composed of two elements, A plus B, is fragmented such that the innocuous element A 
takes the place of the emotionally charged element B. Quote, the hysteric who weeps at A is quite unaware that he is doing so because of the association AB, and B itself plays no part at all in his conscious life. Okay, he weeps over A, um, but it's because of, a, of, of an element of the experience B uh, uh, that he does not remember or has no consciousness of. The enigmatic childhood memory is shown to exemplify the same psychical mechanism then as this excessively intense idea, quote-unquote, over which the hysteric unaccountably and puzzlingly weeps, as do the symptoms of obsessional neurosis and paranoia, and as well the non-pathological phenomenon of dreaming. However, the model of a simple substitution of A for B has been further complicated by the notion of a compromise formation the results from a conflict of mental forces in which neither cancels out the other but both continue. Quote, instead a compromise is brought about somewhat on the analogy of the resultant in a parallelogram of forces. Um, have I got something to draw this on the board? Uh, it's not exactly a pa parallelogram. What I'm remembering from school physics uh, you know, if there's, uh, if, if say, a block of wood uh, is moving along at a certain speed, okay, and something on a different trajectory comes, comes down and hits it, if it, if it not hit it, it would just continue along that path. If this hadn't intersected with that, it would have continued along that path. Instead, what results is something like that, a compromise between... It's not exactly a parallelogram, but it's my memory of that, of, the, of that diagram from school physics. In other words, a compromise resultant in which the power of the two forces is still operating, but, but the, the trajectories they would have taken right, is not manifest. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a really pretty straightforward model of a, comp a compromise formation, as it were. Um, <coughs> um, in the conflict between the force that seeks to, quote, fix important impressions by establishing reproducible memory images and the resistance to that force, what results is not a direct reproduction of the experience in question, but an image which is to some degree associatively displaced from it, just as the, the actual trajectory of the block that is thrown off course okay, is displaced from the, the trajectory it would have taken. It will lack the emotionally significant but disturbing elements uh, that pr provoke the resistance to, to memory, and hence it will appear trivial or insignificant. But with its sensory elements phantasmatically enhanced and intensified, its retention in memory is due not to its content, but to its relation with the disturbing elements that have been excluded. Freud cites the old saying about counterfeits, like a false gold ring or something, uh, that, quote, they're not made of gold themselves, but have lain beside something that is made of gold. As Freud himself remarks, this schematic representation of the screen memory turns on what, <coughs> in contemporary language, we would call a metonymical relationship of displacement by contiguity making use of two elements from a contemporaneous or a simultaneous ensemble, as in the A to B, A and B schema. However, this forecloses, cuts out, the temporal dimension, which is so crucial to the process of afterwardsness that we've talked about as governing trauma, the temporality of trauma, Freud's word, nachträglichkeit, afterwardsness, which Strachey translates, remember, as deferred action. 
this nevertheless returns with all its problems in the example of the screen memory Freud gives. As is obvious from a knowledge of Freud's biography and especially from his dream material in the interpretation of dreams and um, as well as from the fleece letters, the clinical example of a screen memory that is analysed at length in this essay in the form of a Socratic dialogue with a fictionalised patient is in fact based on Freud's own personal memories. Okay? So there are kind of two Freuds in the essay. The dialogue takes place then between Freud the analyst and the undisclosed or disguised Freud the analysand, who we are told is, quote, not at all or only very slightly neurotic, unquote. And this enables Freud to dramatise something of the oscillations that have characterised his theoretical struggles in the 1890s um, as we've followed them in, in, in some of the weeks of last term. As Nick, Nick, Nick Rand and Maria Turok, whose work we'll be looking at in a few weeks' time, uh, comment on this essay, the essay is a dramatisation of an internal debate of Freud's, as in a play, two interlocutors represent opposed points of view. What is at stake here in this clinical dialogue is the temporal structure of the memory-fantasy relation. And although it is not acknowledged as such, the word doesn't appear as such in the essay, what is at stake is the logic of afterwardsness, as it, as it has governed the model of the trauma. What has plagued Freud <coughs> in the framework of the seduction theory was both the status to be given to certain focal scenes, uh, were they memory, were they fantasy, and the relation between early moments and later moments in the dialectic of afterwardsness. Despite a tendency to polarise in some of his essays, the priority of the early scene as the site of memory over against the priority of the later scene as the moment of back projection and retrospective fantasy, we have traced, uh, I think in some of the, uh, the texts we looked at, a richer and more complex understanding of their mutual interdependence rather than polarised opposition. For the logic of afterwardsness had entailed the inscription of an excess, a surplus of, ex of disturbing excitation that had resisted integration and binding into the ego and its archives in the experience of trauma. Uh, and this was reactivated and reworked in later moments. Its paradox was, the paradox of of, of, of trauma was the notion of powers emanating, I'm quoting here, the notion of powers emanating from a memory image which were in fact absent from the real impression. Right? A notion of powers emanating from a memory image that were in fact absent from the real impression. It was not the immediate or direct result, the, the traumatic effect was not the immediate or direct result of either the earlier infantile or the later adult scenes. Uh, that could explain the historical symptoms, but a composite image. You could call it a memorial fantasy or a phantasmatic memory. And it derived from both earlier and later scenes simultaneously, a kind of hybrid um, formation. Freud approaches this again in the form of the screen memory, which he explicitly compares with the historical symptom. Unfortunately, Freud, uh, the essay to some extent is a bit of a missed encounter um, but nevertheless, I think a very valuable one to follow through. Now briefly, the enigmatic memory that Freud, uh, the analysand, presents stages a lush meadow full of yellow dandelions where three children, the young Freud, inverted commas, and two cousins, a boy and a girl, are playing and gathering flowers. 
The little girl has the best bunch, so the two boys, quote, fall on her and snatch away her flowers, unquote. She runs in tears up the meadow to a cottage where a peasant woman gives her a big slice of black bread and butter. The two boys throw away their flowers and run up, demanding to be given some bread too. Quote, the peasant woman cuts the loaf with a long knife. In my memory, the bread tastes quite delicious, unquote. So Freud, the patient, comments that there is, quite something not quite right about the scene, unquote, that he recalls, uh, <coughs> such as the intensity of the yellow of the flowers and the taste of the bread, which seemed to me exaggerated, he says, in an almost hallucinatory fashion, unquote. Now, one of the functions of the dialogue between Freud the analyst and Freud the analysand is to accommodate an emphasis on both early and later moments, to give them each their due, as it were. The analysis begins by establishing that the memory, as distinct from the scene remembered, does not itself date back to early childhood, but was, the f but was first awoken at the age of 17, when Freud, in inverted commas, uh, was visiting the rural scenes that feature in the memory, and he was experiencing his first love. This gave rise to a set of fantasies, quote, that were not concerned with the future, but whose aim was to improve the past. The aim was to improve the past. And it centred on the 15-year-old daughter of the old family friends he was staying with, marriage to whom represented to him an alternative happier life history than the one that had followed his family's departure from the country to the city due to the collapse of his father's business and went bankrupt. <coughs> he, com he comments, quote, I can remember quite well for what a long time afterwards it was that I was affected by the yellow colour of the dress she was wearing when we first met, whenever I saw that same colour elsewhere, unquote. This clearly signals retrospective fantasy as the driving force in the production of the memory. Three years later, at the age of 20, Freud, again, Freud in inverted commas, revisits the now grown-up cousins, that is to say, the boy and the girl, who figured as children in the memory. Here he does not fall into love with his female cousin uh, from the childhood scene, as he had with the, the girl uh, in the... In the uh, the visit to his old family friend three years earlier, but rather his uncle and his father plan a possible marriage between the two of them that would involve Freud giving up his studies at university and joining his uncle's successful business, becoming a businessman. The fantasy shared by both the fathers, as well as the son's earlier fantasy, falling in love uh, uh, with the girl from the old family friends three years earlier, quote, aimed to make good the loss in which the, original in which the original catastrophe, family bankruptcy, moving to the city, uh, an impoverished um, existence in the city, uh, had involved my whole existence as a child." Unquote. Freud, the analyst, pinpoints the amalgamation of these two later fantasies. Marrying the girl in the yellow dress, associated with the chain, dark yellow alpine flowers, light yellow lowland flowers, yellow dandelions, in the memory scene, that's fantasy one, and marrying his cousin and joining the family business, exchanging the flowers of his academic interests for the prosperous bread and butter uh, occupation uh, uh, <coughs> in his uncle's business. That's fantasy two. And Freud the analyst tells Freud the analysand, quote, you projected the two fantasies onto one another and made a childhood memory out of them, unquote. The screen memory thus constructed represents the fantasies of a later date 
through symbolic and associative connections, both metaphoric connections of analogy and metonymic connections of contiguity or adjacency. And his alter ego replies back to the analyst, quote, but if that is so, there was no childhood memory, but only a fantasy that was put back into childhood. And a feeling tells me that the scene is genuine, he says to his analyst. Two issues are at stake here. The familiar one of the authenticity of memory as against its retrospective construction and the question of motive. Why was it necessary to represent adult or adolescent fantasies by childhood scenes? What, what drove that transformation? And especially if the fantasies, or at least one of them, had the stamp of paternal approval. You know, why, why, why did it have to be repressed uh, and, and only represented symbolically? The reply to the latter involves the explication of a sexual dimension to the innocent early scene. The taking of flowers from the girl, the two boys fell on her and snatched away her flowers, makes use of the traditional symbolism of deflowering to represent a sexual wish. This sexual fantasy is the prolongation of the conscious one of marrying into an approved past and prosperous present, but one that has to remain unconscious because, and I quote, the dominating mood of diffidence and of respect towards the girl kept it suppressed. So it remains unconscious. It slips away into a childhood memory it is precisely the coarsely sensual element in the fantasy which explains why it did not develop into a conscious fantasy but must be content to find its way allusively and under a flowery disguise into a childhood scene. And Freud the analyst formulates this as a general principle and I quote, the slipping away of repressed thoughts and wishes into childhood memories happens invariably with historical patience, he says. And he adds that there is always some pleasurable motive for the recall of the remote past, the remobilization of a childhood scene. Uh, so we have the potential theory of uh, remembrance as wish fulfillment, which would be parallel to dreaming as wish fulfillment. At this point, the essay appears to be firmly aligned with the retrospective fantasy that dates from uh, the, the position of retrospective fantasy that dates from the September 1897 letter of repudiation uh, of the seduction theory that, that we've looked at last term uh, and the much more recent letter that I, that I quoted from at the beginning um, prioritizing the prehistoric as it were. Uh, as a result, Freud, the alter ego, the analysand responds to Freud, the analyst, I cannot help concluding that what I am dealing with is something that never happened at all now but has been unjustifiably smuggled in among my childhood memories. This allows the official Freud to take up once again the claims of the prehistoric and the infantile. And I quote, I see that I must take up again the defense of the memory's genuineness. You are going too far. Suppose now that this slipping away into childhood scenes cannot occur unless there is a memory trace, the content of which offers the adult fantasy a point of contact comes, as it were, halfway to meet it. Once a point of contact of this kind has been found, in the present instance it was the deflowering, the taking away of the flowers, the remaining content of the fantasy is remodeled with the help of every legitimate intermediate idea that it can make contact with, taking the bread, for example, till it finds points of contact with the childhood scene." Unquote. So Freud's defense of the genuineness of the childhood scene points to both the potentials within it for meeting the adult fantasy halfway, as well as to its resistance to being simply made over by the later fantasy. 
Certain details of the scene don't quite fit. Uh, the boy co- presence of the boy cousin, the peasant woman and the nurse. Uh, and there is this signal, the hallucinatory intensity of the yellow flowers and the taste of the bread, which signal the, the presence of a phantasmatic pleasure. Now, what is striking about this account is that despite the parallel of the screen memory with the dream and the, as a form of wish fulfillment, Freud's defense of the genuineness of the childhood scene actually reverses his model of the dream. And, and I'll explain it this way. With the dream, a recent wish only leads to a dream if that recent wish is a derivative of a prehistoric one and can get itself adopted by the childhood, the earlier childhood or infantile wish. Unquote. That's from a letter to Fleece. While the screen, memory of child, the screen memory of the childhood scene is merely the delegate of the organizing fantasy that comes from the later period. Despite its genuineness, it is merely raw material that was utilizable. Otherwise, quote, it would not have been possible for this particular memory, rather than any others, to make its that way forward into consciousness. Freud's assumption here seems to be both that the childhood experience is inscribed somewhere in a vast internal post-restant waiting revivification, but it contributes nothing in the way of meaning or wishful fantasy to the formation of the screen memory. That comes entirely from the later adolescent or adult experience. And to take his example of the point of contact, his example is the taking of the flowers, which existed only as a brutally literal gesture between children, waiting for its figurative meaning to be conferred on it in retrospect um, uh, by, by the adult fantasy, being absorbed into the order of signifiers as a symbolic act of deflowering at a later point. However, if it had no pre-existing personal significance for the small flower thief, for the child, why was it recorded at all? And in the form of a scene in a narrative with its own dramatis personae, in excess of the requirements of the colonizing adult fantasy. Why was it there waiting, as it were? Um, in, order, um, in other words, a, a prior process of selection would have had to taken place for that memory to be available in the first place. In order for it to be organized and encoded in the form of a scene and a narrative, however partial and enigmatic it might be, a prior selection was necessary, not just of this particular memory rather than of others, but also of these sensory elements in the memory, that is to say, the vividness of the yellow flowers, the delicious taste of the bread. Why those sensory experiences out of the manifold of sensory data that had constituted this moment of experience? And by ignoring this prior selection and the reasons for it, Freud's defense of its genuineness takes place at the expense of its meaningfulness. It's real, but it doesn't have any meaning of its own until it's retrospectively donated meaning. Uh, And that leaves uh, as an open question, well, why was this memory uh, in such nuanced detail retained and recorded, awaiting reuse, as it were, unless it has some psychic punch, some... Um, phantasmatic power of its own. Now, one of the puzzling things about the screen memory essay is the partial disconnection uh, of the schematic model of screen memory. That is to say, Freud offices, uh, offices us three models of a screen memory. There's the regressive screen memory, in which uh, later experiences regress back to um, available childhood memories and, and rework them and are screened off by the childhood memories. There is um, 
uh, contemporary screen memory, um, as in the, a, the schematic AB example, uh, where um, the screening element and what is screened by it are contemporary with each other. Okay, so there appears there to be no temporal, no obvious temporal structure. And then Freud allows the theoretical possibility of what he calls a progressive screen memory, in which an early childhood experience, which was in some sense excessive, um, unassimilated, right, um, is then represented um, by a later and disguised by, screened off by a later experience, which in some sense uh, frames it, sublimates it, contains it, um, domesticates it in some way, manages it, if you like, in some way. So he offers you these three um, models based on three different relationships to time. Um, but in, in, in none of his work on screen memories, whether in this essay, which is dealing with a regressive screen memory, nor in the chapter on screen memories in his uh, book, The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, where he goes back to the topic of screen memories, where the analysis he offers us is of two contemporary elements in the same uh, field of experience. So he nowhere offers us an analysis of a progressive screen memory, and it's precisely the progressive screen memory that recapitulates the model of trauma again. That is to say, of some uh, moment of original inscription that is excessive, um, uh, unintegratable, disabling even, disabling in its sense of um, uh, something, uh, something in excess, um, which then, as it were, um, is, is, is lying there in wait for uh, reactivation and retranscription, retranslation, if you like, uh, in a later moment. So, the, as it were, it's just around the corner, um, and Freud nowhere addresses this, uh, th this relationship of, this, of screen memory to the question of trauma. Um, but it's kind of there, um, the question's there to be asked, so to speak. And very interestingly, the essay ends up um, uh, with a sort of skepticism, if you like, about um, all childhood memories. Do we have any childhood memories that are simply, as it were, transparent photographic records um, of a real event that we can simply sort of like pick up off the shelf of, of memory. Say, ah, yes, that's, that's it, um, as it were. Um, and there's this missing um, consideration of the notion of, pro of progressive screen memory that would have taken him um, into, back into explicitly in the direction of the trauma theory. So, but with his generalized skepticism about the claims of memory, um, if memories are childhood memories we're talking about here, childhood memories are all a question of a conflict of mental forces, their compromise, as it were, um, and therefore um, the uh, uh, exclusion and screening out of some key element in them. Um, we are a long way then from, um, the, the, uh, we end up a long way uh, uh, to the question of trauma and its relationship to memory. I would end up with this rather interesting statement he makes um, uh, that maybe we don't, we only have memories of childhood, but we don't have any, any memories that are simply from childhood. In a sense, having started off with this unusual set of experiences, puzzling, enigmatic, without emotional significance, but very vivid, why should they have been retained in memory? Freud ends up making this kind of parabola whereby he ends up saying, that becomes the model for all childhood memories, as it were. Um, 
And uh, though we have this generalized phenomenon that he calls childhood amnesia, um, nevertheless, he says, everything that was of emotional significance, um, despite its uh, erasure from the conscious archives of memory, is somehow or other inscribed in enigmatic form uh, in, in, in one, of these, and one of these, as it were, screen memories. Okay? So uh, we get this kind of simultaneous, this rewriting of the notion of both memory and forgetting, as it were. Um, in some sense, nothing's ever forgotten. It's inscribed in some form. Nothing was emotionally significant, I should say. It was never forgotten. It's inscribed in some form. On the, on the other hand, um, nothing, is ever, never, nothing ever is ever remembered either. Right? Um, in other words, both terms of the opposition, memory and forgetting, are, are under erasure or in inverted commas, as it were. Uh, <coughs> and that, that, that paradox, I think, is essential to the, the next two concepts that we're thinking about this week the notion of object choice and the notion of transference. Okay, so I'm going to say something about them now. The notion of transference, that is to say, is the repetition of earlier and forgotten experiences that are played out within the analytic situation between the analysand and the analyst. Um, uh, it's a crucial sort of clinical concept that Freud um, formulates. And initially, it's seen as a major obstacle. Transference is a problem, right? It throws um, analyses off course. Um, the the um, an analyst is conscripted into some kind of forgotten scene, um, uh, and and the analysand experiences the analyst only in those terms. And Freud sees it as a problem, an obstacle, something negative to be got rid of. Okay, um, and unfortunately, rational statements to the analysand like, I'm not your father, <laughs> you know, don't do any good, okay? Um, the, the analyst has been conscripted into a certain scenario and no amount of rational uh, argumentation uh, uh, is going to kind of persuade the, uh, the, the analysand that that's what's happening um, uh, and that they should stop doing it and get on with the analysis, okay? Until Freud comes to realize that actually it's transference that makes analysis work, Okay? that it's transference that is crucial to the analysis, uh, and that his earlier model of simply remembering, of recall, um, uh, is, a, is, is an inadequate model for what takes place in the analysis, as it were. Now, in the, the essay the, I've asked you to read, which is uh, re, uh, remembering, um, acting out, and working through... Um, 
Okay. He goes over a kind of little pack potted prehistory of the different models of analysis that he's, that he's moved through, as it were. Okay. In other words, he returns to that essay um, that he co-authored with Breuer in 1893, which we began the course by looking at. Uh, and the problems of that. that. And it was the old model of catharsis uh, uh, under hypnosis and of the abreaction uh, uh, of the um, delayed and pent-up emotions attached to the, f- to the forgotten tra- trauma scene. Now, he, so he begins by setting out in this essay uh, a simplified schema of three stages. Um, first of all, he says, the way he began uh, thinking about these things and practicing them was with Breuer's model of catharsis, which consisted of bringing into focus the moment at which the symptom was formed and appeared. That must have been the moment when it was caused, he thought. Um, And especially the mental processes and the emotions involved in that situation. The verb he uses here in these texts that we looked at, and more of them, 95, 96, is not remember but reproduce, okay, Uh, with its suggestion of a sort of acting out or reenactment of past experiences in order to, that they can discharge their pent-up and undischarged feelings uh, in, in conscious life in the immediate present. That's the first model. And Freud summarizes the clinical aim of that model of analysis as, quote, remembering plus abreaction under hypnosis. Remembering plus abreaction under hypnosis. The technical term abreaction is elaborated in that 1893 paper um, and it suggests that beyond the activity of cognitive recognition and, 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 and cognitive recollection of the past, there is this word, uh, what he calls an economic dimension. That is to say, a cathartic purging of an excessive quota of emotion that is tied to a set of traumatic memory traces and their associated ideas. And it's the retention of that that has kept those ideas active, simultaneously active and unconscious at the same time. So he, so he needs to discharge, abreact, um, purge cathartically that bottled-up emotion. In the second stage, hypnosis is given up as the means of access uh, to the situation behind the symptom. Uh, and, quote, the task becomes one of discovering from the patient's free associations what he has failed to remember. Okay? So um, the free associations of the patient around the symptom um, then become the focus of analytic attention. Where previously the patient's resistance had been overcome by hypnosis, now, quote, the resistance was to be circumvented by the work of interpretation and making his results known to the patient. So uh, the patient free associates and the analyst responds with what he calls um, free-floating attention. Free association on one side, free-floating attention of the analyst on the other side, which leads to the offer of an interpretation to the patient, which uh, in this model um, overcomes resistance. Where previously the patient's role had been to remember and abreact, purging the, what in 1893 he calls the strangulated affect of the scenes, uh, the traumatic scenes, now abreaction recedes into the background and is replaced by the expenditure of mental work which the patient had to make to overcome his internal criticism of his free associations. The patient has to then, as it were, dismantle his own um, uh, resistance to his own free associations 
And that work takes the place, Freud suggests in that model, model two, uh, that expenditure of mental work takes the place of something like catharsis. Then he goes on, he says there's a third stage of development. Here the immediate focus of the analysis is no longer directly concerned with a particular problem, the problem maybe that drove the analysand into analysis, or with a particular symptom. Um, uh, and the moment of that symptom's appearance, so that there's an agenda. Right, we're working on this symptom, then we'll hope to get rid of that, we'll move on to the next one, and then on to the next one, as it were. Um, Freud abandons that whole, um, that whole uh, notion of an agenda. Um, and the, in, the, inter- the analyst's interpretation now addresses not the traces of a past situation, but the patient's resistances as they are manifested in his speech and his free associations in the present. And the the analysis begins with whatever the analysis happens to bring that day. It's no longer an agenda set by the analyst, but something that's set by the analysand who comes in and may just start free associating about, God, I had an impossible time getting here this morning, uh, and unloads a whole lot of stuff about why they're late. Um, and so instead of saying, well, yeah, let's not talk about that. We were working on your, your symptom of X or Y, okay? Um, the analysis just sits, the analysis listens to what's being said. Whatever is at the, on the surface of the, of the analysis mind is where the session starts, okay? So in that sense, it's, it's set by the analysis, who, of course, when they bring that material, don't know what it is that they're bringing, as it were. Now, it's a, in some ways, as Freud presents it in that essay, it's a rather idealised schema. It's a new division of labour in which the analyst uncovers the patient's resistances and the patient um, often relates, the, duly obliges then, by relating the forgotten situations without any difficulty, unquote. The, the ultimate aim remains the same as the earlier two forms or models of the treatment, to fill in gaps in memory. Um, and you now, not with the aid of hypnosis, but through the overcoming of resistances due to repression by interpretation. Now, as if in response to the rather simplified um, or idealised notion of this, of this general schema, Freud then starts a very interesting excursus at that point in the essay, <coughs> um, in which entails what I've pointed to at the end of the screen memory essay, a kind of deconstruction of the common sense under, understandings or meanings of forgetting and remembering. Okay? And he goes through a series of psychical phenomena that are the raw material, the bread and butter, so to speak, of, of, of any analytic session. Um, a survey of phenomena uh, that is dealt with in, the, in, in analysis in which nothing is ever forgotten, but at the same time nothing is ever remembered as it were, and forgetting and remembering, then are kind of, so I say, put in inverted commas. Now, the, the implication of the, of the screen memory essay, um, it's, it's, as it were, dismantling of the common sense model of memory, would go something like this. Um, in, the, in our ordinary understandings of memory, I now, me, in the present, remember that situation then, okay, back there. I remember me then. I now, here, remember me then clear demarcation between now and then, okay, um, and, but, a, but a kind of continuity at the same time between me now remembering and me then that I, re- that I remember, okay. Whereas the dismantling of that gives us a model of memory um, in the Screen Memories essay in which um, this scene re- is reproduced now in the present, 
but I don't remember it. That's what the patient says. The patient acts out something in the present. Okay? It may be in the form of a screen memory, it may be uh, in some other form. And when the analyst says, the scene seems to be something like this, the patient says, but I don't remember that. Now that's the clinical anomaly that Freud encounters again, under different forms again and again. A scene re rep replicates itself, re is reproduced in the present. Okay? This scene remembers me, but I don't remember it. Okay? This scene conscripts me <laughs> into it, um, but, but it's not my memory. So there's that moment of non-recall and of repudiation, but in the very acting out of a particular scenario. And that's Freud's, in a way, his recurrent problem. How do I understand that? What on earth is happening when this happens? Okay. Um, <coughs> now this comes, this, and this is central to the notion here of, um, uh, of transference. Okay. And he recalls um, from the screen memory essay this claim that, on the whole, we remember very, almost nothing from our early childhood years. We have certain memories that appear intense but insignificant, but encoded within them are the essentials. Okay, so at one level everything's forgotten, at another level the essential is retained, but we don't, but we don't remember it. Okay, we d and we don't recognise it, as it were. Okay. So something becomes active in the present, but not in its own terms, okay? Like the resultant that comes from the displacement of one set of forces by another, the throwing off course of something. Um, something is active in the present, but unrecognized um, as such. It's displaced into, it's known through its derivatives, if you like, okay? So what we have, um, to use, make a, a linguistic distinction that Freud makes in his German, what we have is a distinction between a representative and a representation. A representation would be like a flash, ash, 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 back, ack, ack. I recall that, right? Transparent memory, right? The image I have in my mind is the, um, is the mimesis, the metaphorical um, likeness or similitude of an event that happened in the past, okay? But what we've got are not representations in that sense. We have representatives derivatives, things that are connected, but they don't present um, uh, what they're representing. <laughs> okay? they, they are not transparent mental photographs of something, but they are derivatives of it, and they carry the toxic load of the thing that they are not representations of, but which in some sense they are delegates of. They are representing in that sense. They are delegate, they're de delegates of this thing. And, and in the classic structuralist distinction, it's a metonymic rather than a metaphoric connection that's at stake there. <coughs> now, Freud says rather ruefully, oh, when I was working with hypnosis, it all seemed so much simpler and easier because the patient under hypnosis um, put himself back into the earlier situation, but he never seemed to confuse it with the present moment. Okay? Uh, and so they were kept, the present and the past were kept quite clear, distinct from each other. However, it's precisely their confusion that is the, the essence of transference. Okay? The confusion of the past moment which comes alive in the present, but in terms of the present, and is not recognized as past, as it were. 
so with the technique that's focused on transference and, the, and paying attention to the transference, as it were, Freud says, um, the patient does not remember anything of what he has forgotten and repressed, but he acts it out. He reproduces it, not as a memory, but as an action. He repeats it without, of course, knowing that he is repeating. So the acting out is a substitute for conscious recollection. Freud instances this repetition with a couple of examples, standard examples, almost formulaic examples um, from textbook psychoanalysis of a patient, for instance, who does, has no memory of being defiant or hostile to the authority of his parents, uh, but who behaves in a persistently hostile and defiant way to the, to the analyst. Or a patient who does not recall being ashamed and secretive about his sexual feelings um, and activities in the past, but he is intensely ashamed and intensely embarrassed about his entry into analytic treatment. And he treats it in the same way, as it were. Right? Like the screen memory and the whole range of neurotic symptoms, transference onto the analyst is both an unavoidable alternative to remembering, uh, uh, and, but it's also a point of access, if it's treated properly, to what is not being remembered. Okay? So it's not simply an obstacle, it's the crucial form in which the not remembered becomes present. Okay, so it's not simply an obstacle to be eliminated, to be got out of the way. It's to be paid enormous attention. It's the folk. If transference doesn't happen, analysis doesn't happen. That's, that's the, 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 the essence. As long as the patient is in the treatment, he cannot escape from this compulsion to repeat. And in the end, we understand that this is his way of remembering, unquote. And that phrase, compulsion to repeat, which is going to have a big history, it's got a great future to it, um, appears for the first time there. Now, how do we then understand this? Freud then um, uh, gives us this very interesting argument. The clinical aim is to fill in gaps of memory, okay, um, but it's to give a space to this compulsion to repeat, to act out, give us a privileged space to it in the analytic session. It becomes, Freud says, a playground and allows this compulsion to repeat, to expand, in order for these repressed or hidden things to become put into action once again. And I quote, We regularly succeed in giving all the symptoms of the patient's neurotic illness a new transference meaning and replacing his ordinary neurosis by, quotes, a transference neurosis, um, which, and only that can be cured by the therapeutic work. The transference thus creates an intermediate region between illness and real life, through which the transition from one to the other is made. The new condition has taken over the features of the illness, but it represents an artificial illness which is at every point accessible to our intervention. It's a real piece of experience, uh, uh, Freud says, now in the present. This is an extraordinary conception of a hybrid formation that is artificially induced um, um, within the artifice of the analytic situation in its conventions of free association, speech rather than action, regular attendance at agreed times, um, sitting, lying on the couch, etc. All the, the artifice of the session, as it were, creates a kind of framed um, theatre, if you like, in which this um, uh, a tra a transference neurosis can be played out. At the same time, however, it is a piece of real experience, one whose function is to actualize anew something else that pre-existed it. The original conflict emerges from the unconscious and, from its and its deposits from the past into the space of the transference as a new present object, the object of the free-floating attention of the analyst. 
The rationale for this is pragmatic. Freud says we cannot overcome an enemy who is absent or who is outside our range. Okay? We can't deal with something that is merely past, over and done with, something that is merely in absentia. Okay? So it's the presentness of the repetition in relation to the analyst that allows a new kind of therapeutic intervention. Freud's clinical claim is that the absent infantile conflict can only be targeted and resolved, as it were, by proxy through the artificial transference neurosis that replaces it in the present moment of the analysis. But this proxy is not simply an effigy. He begins one of his essays by saying, the in the transference, we are not dealing with something in effigy. And that's a legal term. It was once a, a legal term where... Um, uh, outlaws who could not be captured were public punished in effigy. That is to say, a straw dummy of them was burnt or ritually beheaded, as it were, as a sort of symbolic casting out and punishment of somebody you couldn't get hold of because they were outside the law. They, they were punished in effigy. And Freud said, that doesn't work in analysis. So you, so you need to make that present, okay? um, active again uh, in the present, acted out in the present. Okay. Um, the patient repeats everything that has made its way uh, from the sources of the repressed into his manifest personality, he says. Um, the essay ends with him, and this is the, my final point, um, make, uh, to say, talking about the sources uh, of what's being repressed as being something that has entered into the very formation of his personality and his ego. He doesn't stress the unconscious. It's a rather curious way to end the essay. Um, but later analysts, and I'm thinking in particular of Laplanche, have met, uh, and in that secondary reading essay I, I, I gave you as a, as a reference um, for this week, um, Laplanche makes a distinction between diff two different modalities of the transference. What in French is a distinction between en plane and en creux, which actually comes from um, carving and engraving. If something's engraved on, on plane, it's embossed. If it's en creux, it's kind of like hollowed out. So the, what I've translated as the filled-in transference and the hollowed-out transference. The filled-in transference is what Freud's talking about at the end of this essay. That is to say, everything that's resistant, that's dysfunctional, that's become built into the ego and that resists the unconscious, okay, um, that gets repeated in the transference. It's what Laplanche calls the transference on plane. This has to be dismantled, um, uh, uh, deconstructed to allow a second modality of the transference to be played out. And that second modality of the transference he calls metaphorically, Laplanche does, the transfert en creux, that is to say, the hollowed out transference. What does this mean? And this is where Laplanche's model of the situation of primal seduction um, is invoked. Um, beyond everything that has been incorporated dysfunctionally into the structure of the resistant ego, um, which are sort of, in Laplanche's terms, they are the translations that have been made of the original enigmatic message. Okay? Uh, translations that are partial uh, and that have actually um, uh, repressed as much as they've translated. They need to be dismantled. Uh, and uh, a re-encounter with that original primal enigma uh, needs to take place in the space of the analytic session. Okay. Um, uh, that is to say, the, so the actual sources of the unconscious um, and that have produced the unconscious need to be re-encountered. And that's what Laplanche, in differentiating two different modes of the transference, calls the encreur, the, the, the hollowed-out transference, the re-encounter with the uh, originary enigma in the situation of primal seduction.
Okay, I'll, I'll leave it there.